when given the truth, you have to go through mental gymnastics to justify, you know, the abuse and consumption of animals and animal products. There just really is no reason. Hello dear friends of the natural high. This week we're going to deep dive into veganism. Coronavirus is the latest in a long line of global crises started by consuming animals. So with the production and consumption of animal products seeming ever more unsustainable for our planet, it feels like a particularly good time to delve into the subject. My dear friend Adam began his foray into veganism a few years ago and he has some interesting stories to tell about the benefits it has had for his health, his conscience and for the planet. There's an arrogance about us humans. We assume we will last forever, that we are the masters of the universe. Why do we believe that? Do you know anyone who genuinely believes that humankind will be extinct in the next 20 years? But it could happen. If another disease were to come along now and compound the current pandemic, humankind may struggle to keep its head above water even for the next few years. We've talked about global warming and ecological disaster for decades, but until coronavirus, the more worrying projections were still seen by many to most as alarmist. Perhaps with the advent of coronavirus, we will finally wake up to the fact that we decide how long humankind survives on this planet and that we simply can't continue to live like this. Measures like banning the consumption of meat may seem ridiculously extreme to many, but these are the sorts of measures which may become a reality if we're going to turn the tide of global disaster and proliferate humankind beyond the end of this century. The sixth mass extinction is happening much quicker than the extinction of the dinosaurs did, for example. And as brutal as it sounds, perhaps in some ways, coronavirus is a necessary warning. The taser before the bullet, the thing that shakes us out of our apathy and complacency and forces new innovation and a new way of living that helps the planet flourish rather than us continuing to destroy it. I'll throw in some references through the interview in an attempt to give you a rounded view on the plant-based lifestyle and the status quo. As ever, you can drop me a line with comments at thenaturalhighclub at gmail.com or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com and please follow us on Twitter to spread the word at Natural High Club. Enjoy the show. I spent the majority of my life eating yeah, meat and dairy and mm. most of my meals centred around yeah, meat. So why did you decide to make that change? Like, you know, what inspired you in the first place? Yeah, I suppose my background, I had a bad relationship with food. I was a fussy eater and uh, yeah, eating out um, or out of other people's houses sort of caused me anxiety. It's not something I really enjoyed. And food was functional for me, um, not particularly pleasurable or something I you know thought about a lot or spent a lot of time with. Plain cooked meat was one of the few foods that I liked. You know, I didn't like fancy dishes, but like 
chicken breast or steak, I guess. Yeah, are things I ate and and enjoyed as much as I did enjoy food, I guess. Yeah, and that's a big problem because, yeah, ethically, <laughs> I always considered myself as an animal lover. Yeah, grew up having pets, cat, dog, hamsters, birds, and yeah, I was interested in wildlife and nature and very much considered myself, uh, yeah, a friend of the animals. But there's the massive disconnect that three times a day I was consuming meat and dairy products. And you're right, uh, not thinking too much about it. I think part of that comes from the fact that food that's provided for you in the supermarkets, it's just a packaged sanitized looking slab of meat you don't see it, the process that it goes through but i'm sure we'll come on to that so what about the process itself then was it like a gradual or sudden shift from meat to vegetarianism and then to veganism i suppose i chose to be willfully ignorant mm. and uh, yeah and you're right and seeing yeah seeing is the pre-packaged or final product rather than thinking where it came from pork rather than pig flesh or uh, it's beef rather than cow flesh and using euphemisms and yeah just seeing the end product quite a shame yeah quite a shame to think of it now yeah I, I guess I was con- fully conditioned and yeah because I was fussy eater now I looked at vegetarians with an element of admiration but I didn't like their food I, I didn't think I could eat vegetarian food uh, I thought I would starve uh, yeah, I just thought I could could not do it. It would be physically impossible. I would I would starve. Mm. And so yeah, I carried on. Uh, yeah, and not being happy with consuming animals, it was not something I felt good about. But it was just like the way things were. Yeah, couldn't change. And uh, yeah, I was just part of a, a cruel system, really. And uh, mm. I just accepted it. And for, for years, really. It wasn't until I was approaching 40 that I started to really consider making some lifestyle changes and, yeah, thinking about who I was as a person. And, yeah, it's very much an extended sort of adolescence, I suppose, very hedonistic and, yeah, thinking about, yeah, yeah, short-term enjoyment opposed to, you know, who I really am as a person or, yeah, what I'm about, what my ethics were. Yeah. What, yeah, what took me so long? I guess all vegans think that now, like after they make the connection, turn mm-hmm. to veganism, find out how easy it is. They look back at their pre-vegan <laughs> lifestyle with, with shock and horror, really. And, and that's, yeah, that's very much me. It's difficult to put a precise figure to the amount of practising vegans in the world in 2020. Various resources put the figure at around 75 million in a world of nearly 8 billion people. But their number is growing. Sources suggest that India has the most vegetarians in the world, with some 31% of the population identifying as vegetarians. But India has almost no vegans. My research suggests that Poland has the biggest percentage of vegan eaters, with 7% of their population identifying as vegans. They're followed by Israel on 5%, Sweden on 4%, with Switzerland and Brazil on 3%. Tiny numbers, but still a sizable shift from 20 or even 10 years ago. At the other end of the scale, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain and the Czech Republic have particularly meaty diets, and we all know how much the USA loves its meat. 
According to animalcharityevaluators.org, 2-6% of Americans self-identify as vegetarians, but around 60% of the people that identify as vegetarians in these surveys report eating meat when asked to list everything they ate during two non-consecutive 24-hour periods. I thought it was a quick decision. Pretty much when I had made the connection properly, it was quick, but I guess I spent time thinking about how I made the decision then and, and then realised like, seeds were planted earlier. And so while I initially thought, oh, yeah, I pretty much went vegan overnight, then I, I'm looking at it, uh, yeah, and it was over a couple of years, really. And I suppose the first real thing was just learning what veganism is. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a vegan is a person who does not eat any animal products such as meat, milk or eggs, or use animal products such as leather or wool. Because it's so commonly used now, and I, it's obviously what I refer to myself as and my friends, and it just seems like it's always been about. But I think maybe 2013, I guess my sister was and a friend of hers in the early stages of becoming vegans. So quite outrageous, really. Uh, admirable, but not something I could possibly do. During that period, then, my, my sister told me about this documentary called Earthlings. Earthlings is a seminal 2005 documentary which, according to producers NationEarth.com, is about humankind's total dependence on animals for economic purposes. Presented in five chapters, pets, food, clothing, entertainment and scientific research, the film is narrated by Joaquin Phoenix, features music by Moby and was written, produced and directed by Sean Monson. And it's yeah, it's horrific. And yeah, she explained the broad outline of it. And I, I suppose hearing it from her, somebody who I yeah love and trust and respect, and it just made me think: if I watched that documentary, I would have to be a vegan. And yeah, the interesting thing is that I didn't watch the documentary. Like despite having that information, yeah, I made the choice. I suppose on some level that I was ready to watch it and didn't and mm. uh yeah and that's what i find a lot of people because if we all on some level know it's wrong and what goes on in the slaughterhouse it's hidden for us the majority of the time and but we don't yeah we don't want to know according to our world in data.org 80 billion animals are slaughtered each year for meat. The average person in the world consumed around 43 kilograms of meat in 2014, and this ranged from over 100 kilograms in the US and Australia to only five kilograms in India. Meat consumption increases as the world is getting richer. Over the past 50 years, meat production has more than quadrupled. The world now produces more than 320 million tons each year. Pig meat is the most popular meat globally, but the production of poultry is increasing most rapidly. The world now produces 800 million tonnes of milk each year, more than double the amount of 50 years ago. And according to climatenexus.org, animal agriculture puts a heavy strain on many of the Earth's finite land, water and energy resources. In order to accommodate the 70 to 80 billion animals raised annually for human consumption, a third of the planet's ice-free land surface, as well as nearly 16% of global fresh water, is devoted to growing livestock. Furthermore, a third of worldwide grain production is used to feed livestock. By 2050, consumption of meat and dairy products is expected to rise 
76 and 64% respectively, which will increase the resource burden from the industry. Cattle are by far the biggest source of emissions from animal agriculture, with one recent study showing that in an average American diet, beef consumption creates 1,984 pounds of CO2 annually. Replacing beef with plants would reduce that figure by 96%, bringing it down to just 73 pounds of CO2. So some of the ways in which animal production affects the planet Methane released from enteric fermentation and partially from animal manure. Loss of carbon stored in forests and soils from land use change and degradation. And fossil fuels burned to produce mineral fertilizer for feed production. Tackling climate change through livestock, a widely cited 2013 report by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, estimates about 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, or 7.1 gigatons of CO2 equivalent, can be attributed to the livestock sector annually. This is broadly equivalent to the emissions from all the fuel burned by all the world's transport vehicles, including cars, trucks, trains, boats and aeroplanes. Furthermore, air and water pollution can be directly attributed to the livestock sector, which is the largest contributor to global water pollution. The livestock sector is also one of the leading drivers of global deforestation and is linked to 75% of historic deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest. Nearly a third of biodiversity loss to date has been linked to animal agriculture. Further amplifying water and air pollution, global livestock produce seven to nine times more sewage than humans, most of which is left untreated. They also discharge pesticides, antibiotics and heavy metals into water systems. Concentrated animal farming operations present additional public health risks to nearby communities as viral diseases may spread from sick livestock to humans and the increased use of antibiotics encourages antibiotic resistance. Irresponsible manure management from high-volume facilities risks aerosolizing fecal matter that may reach nearby homes and cause respiratory problems. Now that sounds pretty familiar, right? Have there been any noticeable health gains or losses since you relinquished animal products? Has it helped your health or has it hindered your health? Yeah, since 2010, I've got diagnosis with ulcerative colitis, which is a digestive issue, autoimmune disease. And yeah, I was put on loads of medication for it, really. And at the time, that just suited my sort of attitude. Like, it, yeah, it, uh, I took the medication. I was told I'd be on it forevermore and just accepted it and just carried on with the sort of lifestyle that, you know, that I was used to, sort of eating whatever mm. I want. I like to do sports. I like to run, you know, make some concessions to health. But it wasn't a priority, really. And yeah, the medication, I just accepted it. Yeah, I took it. Yeah, I took it for a number of years and it was quite... Mm. Hardcore medicine, I suppose. Started off with strong, very strong steroids, and then this uh, immunosuppressant called azathioprine, which is yeah, it basically weakens your immune system because uh, autoimmune disease is your body sort of over your immune system over acting, I guess, and attacking itself. So right. this reduces your immune system, which is great for the ulcerative colitis, but course it affects your the rest of your immune system which you need for, for other things mm. uh, that made me more susceptible to other illnesses so it was not a medication to take lightly than other sort of uh, maintenance drugs as well so yeah it was a lot of yeah a lot of medication 
And yeah, I took that for a number of years until I just felt that the, yeah, the impact of them was greater than the, the benefit, if you get what right. I mean. With all of those drugs, like it's hard to find that balance in your ecosystem, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's proved right, really, because yeah, as a thyroid you a massively increased chance of developing skin cancer, which is something I was acutely aware of. And yeah, I've stopped taking it. And within six months after stopping taking it, I've got uh, skin cancer and crazy. Yeah, bars yourself off on yeah my forehead and yeah I just thought well yeah thanks for the medication you've made you know you got me over the initial stages of dealing with this colitis and the original flare up but yeah now you're start <laughs> you've overstayed your welcome and I've got to think of different ways to sort of tackle this or at least manage this illness rather than just take loads of prescribed drugs mm. that in the long run are not you know are not going to be good for me. So, yeah, it didn't coincide totally with them, but it started making me think about diet and about eating healthier and lifestyle. And, yeah, it, eventually it did lead to, it's not the reason why I, I went vegan, but, you know, it, it ran parallel because I started thinking about nutrition, about you know, what I eat, about uh, lifestyle, and, yes, and started to well, take up yoga and change my ways, essentially. Mm. And that was eating, and that included eating healthier, taking supplements, eating more fruit, vegetables. Um, yeah, and so yeah, veganism was a was the next step. Yeah, the, uh, well, yeah, I want to say it hasn't it hasn't cured me of it, but currently I take no medication for that whatsoever. And yeah, I've been vegan for the last four years, so that's being a yeah, contributing factor you know without any doubt and you can be a healthy vegan or unhealthy vegan but obviously being a healthy vegan then i know that i can manage the illness a lot better and i'm just so and so yeah it's managing the condition rather than curing it but yeah the thought of being able to do that without medication is i think is a real achievement and i call being vegan as like the vegan superpower and uh it definitely helps and other ailments I had as a child, like asthma, eczema, allergies, all of those things, I took into adult life to a certain extent. And since I've been vegan, uh, symptoms have mostly improved. So how can veganism improve your health? Well, rush.edu says health benefits when done right. Research has shown that a vegan diet can help do the following. Promote weight loss, reduce your risk of heart disease by lowering cholesterol levels, lower your chances of getting certain types of cancer, such as colon cancer. Vegansociety.com. Some research has linked vegan diets with lower blood pressure and cholesterol and lower rates of heart disease, type 2 diabetes and some types of cancer. You can eat a totally plant-based diet that supports excellent health while helping animals and protecting the planet. Choosing a vegan diet gives more room for health-promoting plant foods while cutting out carcinogens from meat along with saturated fat and cholesterol. It's easy to align a vegan diet with the top seven dietary recommendations produced by the Global Burden of Disease Study, GBDS. In order of importance worldwide, these are avoid excess salt, eat 150 grams of whole grains a day, eat 300 grams of fruit a day, eat 25 grams of nuts and seeds a day, eat 500 grams of vegetables a day, get 300 milligrams of long chain omega-3 fats, EPA and DHA a day, and avoid processed meat. 
A more mixed report about veganism came from The Guardian in December 2019. They wrote, Is veganism as good for you as they say? It's the wellness industry's cash cow and athletes' latest choice, but scientists caution there's still much we don't know about the diet. Even this more mixed article said the anti-inflammatory effect of plant-based foods is thought to be the reason why vegan diets appear to relieve symptoms of some autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis. The tennis player Venus Williams, who suffers from Seagrin syndrome, credits turning vegan with mitigating the extreme fatigue associated with the condition and with enabling her to continue competing at the highest level. And with regards asthma, I found an interesting study in nutritionfact.org. It says, what about using a more conventional plant-based diet against a different allergic disease, asthma? In Sweden, there was an active health movement that claimed that a vegan diet could improve or cure asthma. This was a bold claim, so in order to test this, a group of orthopaedic surgeons at Linköping University Hospital followed a series of patients who were treated with a vegan regimen for one year. Participants had to be willing to go completely plant-based, and they had to have physician-verified asthma of at least a year's duration that wasn't getting better or was getting worse despite the best medical therapies available. The researchers found quite a sick group to follow. The 35 patients had long-established hospital-verified bronchial asthma for an average duration of a dozen years. Of the 35 patients, 20 had been admitted to the hospital for acute asthmatic attacks during the last two years. Of these, one patient had received acute infusion therapy a total of 23 times during this period, and another patient claimed he'd been to hospital a hundred times during his disease and on every occasion had evidently required such treatments. One patient even had a cardiac arrest during an asthma attack and had been brought back to life on a ventilator. These were some pretty serious cases. Nutritionfacts.org continues... The patients were on up to eight different asthma medicines when they started with an average of four and a half drugs and were still not getting better. 20 of the 35 were constantly using cortisone, which is a powerful steroid used in serious cases. These were all fairly advanced cases of the disease, more severe than the vegan practitioners were used to. 11 of them couldn't stick to the diet for a year, but of the 24 that did, 71% reported improvement at four months and 92% at one year. These were folks that had not improved at all in the previous year. Concurrently with this improvement, the patients greatly reduced their consumption of medicine. Four had completely given up their medication altogether and only two weren't able to at least drop their dose. They went from an average of 4.5 drugs down to 1.2 and some were able to get off cortisone. Some subjects said that the benefits were so considerable that they felt like, inverted commas, they had a new life. Despite the improved lung function, tests and lab values, the placebo effect can't be discounted since there was no blinded control group. However, the nice thing about a healthy diet is that there are only good side effects. The subject's cholesterol significantly improved, their blood pressures got better, and they lost 18 pounds on average. I've known you for a long time and you have dealt with lots of uh, health issues. And as you say, you've been on pharmaceuticals for a lot of that time. But I hadn't, I didn't know that you weren't taking anything these days. And obviously, there's got to be some link there to your change in diet. The fact that you can actually manage the condition now without taking pharmaceuticals, which nobody really wants to take, do they? I don't think it's rocket science because pretty much everyone knows, like, yeah, yeah if you eat fruit and vegetables, you know, drink water, that... It does improve, yeah, it does improve your, 
your health. And I, I'll be really careful not to say it's uh, going to cure anything, but um, I think it will pretty much any any illness it would yeah help make better. And what I've read and watched since then seems to, you know always seems to back this up. Yeah, and you know what well, I did have a flare up, and I I did think things were getting out of control, and yeah, I made a lifestyle change, didn't I? I quit work for five months, and I yeah went to India and yeah concentrated on resting and relaxing and eating healthy vegan food. The guy who ran the uh, the cult, as it were, um, for in Wild Wild Country, what was his name? Osho. Osho, and you went to his place in India. Yeah, his meditation resort. Yeah, and obviously it's nothing like it was as depicted in the documentary, which, mm. yeah, it's quite outrageous. Yeah, it's quite sanitised. I was going because I was interested in meditation, but, yeah, also a bit of tourism and somebody was fascinated by that documentary. And, yeah, it was in the city that I was staying at. And so it was too intriguing not to go and explore and uh, spend some time there. Were you suspicious after watching the documentary of the man or did, did you feel a, a positivity and warmth towards what he was trying to do? Yeah, overall, I've got a pos- yeah, overall a positivity and although certain aspects of the documentary are not favourable, I think overall he yeah was a, a great mind and as, uh, somebody, yeah, somebody maybe got got lost really towards the end of his life and what, you, what he was preaching and uh, maybe that whole experiment about going to America didn't work out too well. Some of it's quite outrageous. But um, yeah, you know, he was a very well-read spiritual guy and obviously had amazing influence over um, over people, mm. not just in, during his lifetime, but, but now, like, uh, yeah, that resort was full of people all from all around the world, you know, paying you know, money to go there and to follow his word, you know, after his death. So I, I wasn't going just as a, completely as a voyeur. I was going with an open mind and, yeah, it's a beautiful setting. And I, as much as I enjoyed the meditation, some more than others, yeah, I also enjoyed hanging out by the pool and, you know, using the jacuzzi. And, but, yeah, you know, like looking back at the footage from the 70s and 80s, it seemed wild and like, you know, hippies there and uh, free love, <laughs> people cavorting around and they naked and yeah there's none of that unfortunately these days uh yeah, times have definitely changed and this stuff you know they, uh there was a terrorist attack near the resort you know some time back at a german bakery and i think since then they got very tight on security about who comes in and um yeah just getting a pass to get into the resort you know they yeah they want to see your passport and know everything about you and you know, it's not easy. And if there's any doubt in mind, you refused entry. So I had two trips to India. So I went the first time for just a shorter visit and registered and had a pass. So the second time, it's easier to get in. But yeah, you know, to get to different parts of the resort, um, you need to yeah show a security card. And, you know, it's quite high tech, actually. So the idea of it being some sort of hippie, um, you know, free love, culturally relevant to India, you know, from its past it has gone, unfortunately. And it's, but um, you're pretty much free to do, yeah, sort of do what you want. Sort of, there's sessions going on like throughout the day. Yeah, all sorts really in different venues. Beautiful, like there's a like a huge pyramid with a marble floor, which is the main room. And then there's smaller venues as well. There's this particularly beautiful one where like silent meditation takes place with you know, white marble floors and cushions and like all I shows books um, on display. And it was really into collecting uh, Rolls Royces. 
start the mm. entrance of it as one of his Rolls Royces there. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's... Uh, Such yeah, a paradox. Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, my one of my favorite uh, meditations going into this quiet room and it's just doing a silent meditation basically. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was probably the most the most powerful one. And yeah, and behind the resort there, there's this park where open to the public as well. Where we've got a statue of Bo Show and club garden, and anyone can go there. But yeah, yeah I definitely recommend it for anyone in the area to check it out. It was yeah, it was definitely an experience. Didn't you have to do some kind of initiation ceremony as well? I think it's called the welcome meeting. And yeah, and it just started. And I was with a group of people from all around the world, like you know, Russian guy, an Indian guy, uh, someone from China. Uh, yeah, you name it. There was a mix of nationalities. I think I was the only English person in the group. Nice. Uh, yeah, so they started out... Um, yeah, saying, oh, well, welcome here. And to get us to know each other, we're going to do some traditional music from your country. And so they played some Russian music. And the Russian guy was invited to come into the centre, like, to do his Russian dance. And they played some Indian music. And the Indian man and woman went into some Indian dancing, like, you know, traditional music. And, and so it went on in that theme. And then until it got to English music. And then they just played Queen, essentially. Uh, like juxtaposition to all the other like traditional music and so yeah I was uh, invited <laughs> to the centre of the group to yeah cavort you know pretending to be Freddie Mercury and as you know that's not something that comes particularly naturally to me so, <laughs> I'd have paid good money yeah. to see that <laughs> really yeah, good so, money uh, yeah I, I guess yeah I guess I've got my theatre degree and so uh, used to humiliating myself uh, earlier in my life in public so uh yeah i just channeled that and um yeah and did my best freddie mercury mock-up sounds like a really positive experience and a very cosmopolitan blend of people which is a, the idea i suppose bringing people together breaking boundaries is alcohol allowed on campus yeah it wasn't it wasn't boozy i didn't stay in, into the evening that much yeah i didn't stick around there and it didn't seem like it was much of the cult you know the culture really yeah, brilliant. This is a great insight into the place, and I'd love to love to go. What's it called? Uh, Osho's International Meditation Resort. Wonderful. In Pune. Do you take any supplements in general? You don't need any supplements to replace meat protein because, yeah, you can get all the protein you need from plants. Yeah, and all protein essentially comes from plants. If, you, if you're getting protein from an animal, it's because at some point in time that animal was eating plants, so you're just getting your protein secondhand via the animal rather than directly from the plant yeah but i've read some articles about the dangers of transitioning too quickly between meat and not and plant-based diets but i have to say you know my own experience i didn't have any issues with it at all and just felt lighter straight away and more energetic if anything yeah so the only vitamin you really need is vitamin b12 which you can get in meat because it's given to the animals as a supplement so you're getting a supplement yeah secondhand via the the animal flesh but yeah so vegans you do get vitamin b12 in some plant-based milks and in cereals but uh, and you don't need that much vitamin b12 but you do need it so yeah i take a supplement for for that tablet but you can take it in various ways like um a spray or like drop under your tongue have you become more interested in food and cooking since becoming a vegan and what sort of things would you cook now i've, I've heard about some some famous curries that you've been you've been creating yeah since becoming a vegan my palate's changed massively and like what i was saying previously 
by yeah, fussy eater, I'd always eat the same things, you know, if I ordered, you know, in India and or Chinese, I'd order all of the same things off the menu. Yeah. But uh yeah. And now since yeah, being vegan and I've tried and liked so many different dishes and a lot a lot more adventurous. I eat better, I'm not missing out in any way, shape or form. I can still enjoy a version of the foods I once ate, just the vegan version. But yeah, I'm a lot more open to yeah, trying new delicious foods and I've never eaten as much delicious food in my life. And yeah, my relationship with foods improved massively. I eat a lot of bread, <laughs> gluten-free bread, pita, uh, um, olives, hummus, um, yeah, salads, curries are good, you know, foods you can make in bulk and have over a couple of days. Eating out as well, like you pretty much go anywhere and enjoy vegan food now and some brilliant vegan restaurants. But everyone, you know, is getting in on the act. You know, KFC, Nando's, Swagamama, Pizza Express all have vegan options and pretty much every pub in the UK now. Yeah, as a vegan menu or at least a couple of vegan options. Now you're completely converted. Do you feel the urge to convert others? And if so, what's the tactic? Yeah, the different approaches and like some of the activism I've been doing is, is different. Like, so I've been doing um, like vegan outreach with for Veganuary, and it's out in the street, like um, sampling vegan foods to the the general public and speaking to them about veganism. Have they tried it? Have they tried these alternatives like vegan cheese or vegan sausage rolls? And getting them that way and leafleting and having conversations. And then I also do uh, Anonymous for the Voiceless, which is showing uh, um, footage of slaughterhouses, of the dairy industry, of the egg industry, and, you know, that very strong visual images and and talking from the the victim's point of view, which are the animals. And so it's a different approach. So, yeah, I do different types of outreach and, yeah, I'm, I'm not... For one, I just think to make a difference, you have to use all approaches. And yeah, activism could be cooking a delicious vegan meal for somebody who's not vegan, or it could be, you know, liberating um, some yeah some cows heading for slaughter. And yeah, I'm all for all of it. Brilliantly framed. It'd be great to know what your influences are for you in terms of like literary, media, public figures uh, that have inspired you. The, the, the ones that you see as pivotal to your development and your education, which ones would you recommend for people to, to look at? Uh, so Earthlings is the main one because I just only had to hear about it at first and it, I, it checked, fundamentally changed me just without even seeing it. And then I only watched it when I'd really made my mind up and there was you know no going back. And you know I cried watching it and I'm not a particularly emotional person, but uh, it was really when I'd just thought how could I have been part of this for so long and how horrific it is and it's not in one part of the animal industry it's in every part of it and the yeah the cruelty and the suffering and the sheer scale of it was just overwhelming but I don't always recommend people go straight to watch that one you know because it can just overwhelm people or you know turn them off very early into the documentary and they won't get through it and they will just yeah move on um documentaries and there's loads and these are quite obvious ones but they're the ones that sort of got me going into veganism and from yeah from different reasons some for animal rights some for health some for you know environmental um earthlings cowspiracy which uh, your wife recommended to me and 
which was a real eye-opener and a brilliant documentary for the environmental impact of animal agriculture. Definitely a must-watch. Uh, Forks Over Knives, which I've mentioned loads of times. What the Health, Game Changers, they're all on Netflix. Um, Blackfish, brilliant documentary. I'm not sure where that, when, what, um, what platform that's on, but it's definitely worth looking out. There's a, an English documentary called Land of Hope and Glory, which is available free. Um, and that was done by Earthling Ed, who is an activist, very inspirational guy, um, brilliant communicator, full of knowledge and uh, an amazing advocate for the animals. Really recommend people check him out. And he, yeah, he does his own podcast. He's made this uh, film. He's got, you know, works for this or set up this company, Surge, and they do Animal Rights March each year across the world. And yeah, so Ed Winters, Earthling Ed. Now, at that point, I'd never once really contemplated why I consumed animals. I'd not ever really once contemplated why someone wouldn't eat animals. The concept of just consuming animals was so normal, it was so natural, I thought it was necessary. It's what I did every day, so why would I question it? Now, four years ago, around four years ago, May 2014, I came across this story in the news, it was in the BBC News. It was about a truck carrying 7,000 chickens crashing just off the M62 near Manchester. And it really disturbed me, this story, because the journalist was talking about how hundreds of these animals had died on impact. In fact, I think in total, it was 1,500 of the birds died on the impact alone. But what disturbed me even more was that there were hundreds more of them that were alive. And they were suffering. And they were in pain. And I remember reading this article and thinking how horrible it must be for these animals, what terrible suffering they must be enduring. But at that very moment, it dawned on me that in my fridge, there was chicken breasts and chicken thighs and yesterday's KFC. And therefore I was a hypocrite for feeling sorry for these animals when the only reason they were there in the first place was because I ate their flesh and therefore demanded that they be slaughtered on my behalf. So that moment when I was reading that article caused me to question, question my lifestyle, question my actions, question things I'd never thought to question before. It made me say to myself, how do I morally justify doing these things to animals? Are my taste buds more important than their life? I was a hypocrite for feeling sorry for these animals because they were there because of me. There's another an Australian guy called James Aspie, uh, very cool guy. You can imagine meeting him down the beach or at a skate park or at a party. But um, yeah, very open and down to earth, but very informed. And yeah, to watch his like YouTube channel and some of the speeches he's done, you know, excellent and very you know, you know, user-friendly, non-judgmental, and, you know, he's somebody who consumed a lot of animal products and, yeah, changed his ways and now is uh, a great advocate for the animals. Really recommend him and he's, yeah, such a nice guy. James Aspie is an Australian vegan animal rights activist. In 2014, James took a 365-day vow of silence to raise awareness for animals and promote peace over violence. And Gary... Yurevsky, who's you know longer term vegan, different approach, quite more in your face, but uh, absolutely brilliant guy. Uh, some amazing speeches he's done, and yeah, watched a couple of those today, and it was quite humbling actually because it's very easy to get caught up in the whole nutrition side, you know, game changers and you no know, plant based diet, but he really brings it back to the animals and yeah for the first time in a long time today i watched properly watched some like 
slaughterhouse footage and yeah just sort of reminded me what it's really all about that it's about the animals about the victims it's not about us and our diets you know that's important but it's not the most important thing and thinking from the victim's point of view rather than our own selfish point of view uh, he, you know he's been underground for a long time because he, he sort of set back from the movement after doing some amazing work um but he, yeah he posted an audio message about coronavirus which is uh, yeah, I suggest everyone check it out because it's so on point. The coronavirus began because humans have a disgusting, nasty, and filthy habit of eating meat. Consuming the cut-up corpses of animals. Blood, flesh, veins, muscles, and tendons. Along with secretions that drip out of a cow's udder. And eggs that come out of a hen's ass. Ground Zero. For COVID-19, a meat market, a slaughterhouse in Wuhan, China. The bird flu, the swine flu, mad cow disease, MERS, the Spanish flu. All of these viruses and many others came into existence because humans choose to enslave animals and view them as commodities. We choose to artificially inseminate them so we can steal their babies. And then we chop off all their heads and cut them up into hundreds of pieces so we can eat flesh. Did people really believe that there'd be no consequences for this type of behavior? Dairy is Scary on YouTube and uh, What's Wrong With Eggs by Erin Janus. And yeah, podcasts a bit underrepresented here, but there's one in particular I really enjoy. It's called Our Hen House, which is a long-going sort of vegan um, podcast that's been going for a long time, Rain or Shine, It Always Happens, and it's uh, Jasmine Singer and Marianne Sullivan. And so they interview someone each week, have a, sort of, a bit of a goofy intro when they talk about their own lives, then uh, have a guest on, normally somebody very interesting, you know, from the animal rights movement, and then they do a segment called uh, Rising Anxieties, which is about, like, the meat and dairy and the animal, you know, exploitation industry, their response to, you know, the rise in veganism. And that's, yes, my favourite part of it. It's really entertaining. Highly recommend that. Yeah, and just to recap, the book side, the health thing, yeah, How Not to Die, and, yeah, the work of Dr. Gregor, that's that's my main source. Pretty much any vegan would know all of those references. And so I guess maybe it's not for them, but there might be something in there they haven't seen or watched. But, yeah, if anyone, just do a Google search, check it out, and each... You know, each one source will lead to another. And um... it seems to me that we need to transition to plant based diets if we're going to exist beyond the next hundred years or so. You've talked about coronavirus there. You know, we also we've mentioned recently swine flu and foot and mouth disease. All of these global health crises start with mass production and consumption of animal products. Uh, do you think that um, the, the latest pandemic will encourage a different perspective on how we should be living or will it just be business as usual until the next outbreak? Well, I hope, I hope so. I hope, like, first and foremost, it will stop the wildlife trade and, like, the wet markets you know, popular in Asia. Not to make this, like, an Asian issue and because we exploit animals and so if you're against the Yulin Dog Festival, then you should be against the slaughter of pigs and cows and chickens and turkeys in, in this country or in America. Mm. So not to make it a cultural issue because all animal abuse is unnecessary and wrong. 
they lead to you know, massive health issues uh, you know for us you know a, a life of misery and cruelty and suffering for the animal themselves and yeah and, and terrible for our environment like you know the single worst thing for our environment you know beyond like uh, transport or industry is animal agriculture that is leading the way in destroying the planet and yeah there has to be wholesale change fundamental change and yeah, like the coronavirus and the shutdown and the, the changes SART is having to make during this crisis, we need yeah need that on a larger scale. You know, if we're going to tackle yeah the climate crisis and essentially change our ways as human beings, where we you know we're destroying the planet. Somebody that we both really like is uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And I really like the way that he frames stuff because he doesn't do things in a judgmental way. He's a vegan, as we both know. But the way that he frames stuff, he does it in a very factual way. And he talks at length, doesn't he, about the animal industry and meat production and how incredibly cruel it is. But I think that's a really good reference point. Of all the references from this show, I particularly like this one. I would go as far as to say that Yuval Noah Harari is for me, the best writer in the modern world. He's so relevant. And when people ask me what his books are about, I simply say they're about everything. If you haven't read Sapiens, Homer Deus or 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, then lockdown is the perfect time to write that wrong. Get these books or audiobooks and prepare to have your mind blown. I'm going to give you two Yuval Noah Harari quotes here from different sources, but they're both about his feelings towards the animal industry. The first is from a piece he wrote in The Guardian in 2015. He says, What makes the existence of domesticated farm animals particularly cruel is not just the way in which they die, but above all, how they live. Two competing factors have shaped the living conditions of farm animals. On the one hand, humans want meat, milk, eggs, leather, animal muscle power and amusement. On the other, humans have to ensure the long-term survival and reproduction of farm animals. Theoretically, this should protect animals from extreme cruelty. If a farmer milks his cow without providing her with food and water, milk production will dwindle and the cow herself will quickly die. Unfortunately, humans can cause tremendous suffering to farm animals in other ways, even while ensuring their survival and reproduction. The root of the problem is that domesticated animals have inherited from their wild ancestors many physical, emotional and social needs that are redundant in farms. Farmers routinely ignore these needs without paying any economic price. They lock animals in tiny cages, mutilate their horns and tails, separate mothers from offspring and selectively breed monstrosities. The animals suffer greatly, yet they live on and multiply. And the second quote is from Homer Deus and this really brought me to tears because it just talks in detail about the way that animals are treated in mass food production and how we sort of are blissfully ignorant of these sorts of conditions. Today most sows in industrial farms don't play computer games. They're locked by their human masters in tiny gestation crates usually measuring six and a half feet by two feet. The crates have a concrete floor and metal bars and hardly allow the pregnant sows even to turn around or sleep on their side, never mind walk. After three and a half months in such conditions, the sows are moved to slightly wider crates where they give birth and nurse their piglets. 
Whereas piglets would naturally suckle for 10 to 20 weeks, in industrial farms they're forcibly weaned within two to four weeks, separated from their mother and shipped to be fattened and slaughtered. The mother is immediately impregnated again and sent back to the gestation crate to start another cycle. The typical sow will go through five to ten such cycles before being slaughtered herself. Yeah, I love his work and yeah, it's heartening to yeah, such a brilliant voice. He's a vegan and he's yeah, speaking up for the animals and yeah, and not not doing it in a judgmental way, but fact, factually and, and yeah, fact, choose which way you want emotionally, like or factually, it is a massive injustice. And yeah, the impact is huge, but not just on the animal themselves, which has got to be the most important thing because they're essentially the victims, but on everything, our health, our environment, and you know, society in, as, a, as a whole, really. Um, and we do, just because we've done things in the past doesn't mean we need to just carry on doing them, you know, re regardless, because, uh, yeah, it, this this coronavirus, uh, yeah, it, in the short term, it's the most important thing in the world, isn't it? But like, eventually life will go on, but we will just stumble into the next crisis, you know, and there's the long player or the, you know, the environment, but there's just disease and ill health you know the things that affect people you know day to day who doesn't know someone who's had a heart attack or has had a stroke or is obese or has type 2 diabetes uh, you know it, it's on every level it affects us as human beings and we just need to acknowledge it rather than just you know accepting as you know it's what we've always always done because if we carry on the way we have been then you know we're heading for disaster Absolutely. All of the resources and all of the concentration of, you know, science, medical science at this point in time seems to be based on trying to find a cure for the coronavirus rather than necessarily thinking about the source of it, the root, you know, the root of it. And Yeah, uh, well, they shut the everything down, haven't they? They shut, yeah, shut down restaurants, shut down cinemas, shut down, like, you know, even going to the park. But no one's talking about shutting down slaughterhouses like yeah. you know making fundamental change about what we eat what we consume and how we're treating these animals when you think of it a slaughterhouse what's it going to have there it's going to have you know blood like feces like you know bodily secretions it is the most uh, you know disgusting place on earth and mm. there's no such thing as humane slaughter if you ever see slaughterhouse footage it's all bad it's all abuse pain suffering most unhygienic conditions you could imagine it is a horror show worse than any horror film you've ever watched and it's not a one-off situation it is the norm standard practice and it happens everywhere and it's happened every second of every minute like animals are being slaughtered and then we're surprised you know we've got health issues we've got viruses and yeah we've got a society where you know violence and you know, cruelty, you know, is inbred in it and it can't not be because we, you know, we accept this to go on essentially for a, a forgettable meal that will be consumed and forgotten about, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is why I think that Yuval Noah Harari should be part of every school curriculum because he talks essentially about the proliferation of humankind and, and, and the, the, 
the way that we treat animals and the way that we produce food, he just sees that as absolutely central to the problem. So, you know, he does it in a quite dispassionate way in some in some respects. He's talking about the, you know, the macro. He's talking about the meta. He's talking about the, the whole thing, the whole package of how we proliferate humankind. But he can't help but continually draw reference to food production as one of the major ills in society. He gives hope for change because I think, you know, like in all of his books, he, you know, how he starts off with sort of the birth of mankind, essentially, and how we, uh, you know, religion and, um, yeah, coming into the future and sort of algorithms and you know, how society, will, you know, will change and humankind will develop. And I guess in that framework, we will eventually have to change the way we eat. And I don't know if it will, done, will be done for compassionate reasons or uh, for necessity. I, I, my feeling is it will probably come from necessity because mm. you know, you know, animal agriculture is un unsustainable. It's not a good business model. It's an expensive way of doing things. The only reason it func functions at all as an industry is because it's subsidized so much. Mm. Um, yeah, because and people talk about vegan food being expensive, but that's because it's not subsidised. You know, there's not a big, powerful, you know, vegetable lobby, but there is when it comes to dairy and meat and yeah, and you know, even clothing and uh, entertainment and industries, and it's subsidised by government. And America's the you know, worst or best case scenario when you think of the, you know how they like prop up meat and dairy in particular. Is it, is it within the realms of possibility, or am I just being an eternal optimist, to think that the humans might look back in 100 years with utter disdain about how people used to eat meat in the same way that people look back now at how everybody in the world used to smoke cigarettes and how it was just so patently bad and wrong, but it was still done with, 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 with great gusto? Yeah, I, I think humankind will look back with great, yeah, with great shame, and, and rightly so, as you do. Um, you think, yeah, Gary Yurefsky mentions quite often that it took 400 years uh, for white people in America to uh, uh, stop uh, using black people as slaves, and mm. and then it's quite a long period of time afterwards, you know, to have like a segregation um, or stop segregation. I mean, and so. Yeah, when you think of any injustice, whether it's you know, um, you know, between male and female of different races, you know, they've gone on for a long period of time, but eventually there has been change, and and that is the hope. And I think, like we look back on like women not having equal rights, or you know, slavery, or the awful injustices in the world, then we will look back, um, you know, with yeah, animal abuse and animal agriculture in the same way absolutely fascinating getting all those references from you and you're clearly well studied and passionate about the subject what would you say to meat eaters in closing do some research don't yeah don't be so defensive and <laughs> no yeah, most people at some stage um, consume animal products because that's the society we live in but yeah ask yourself the question it's not impossible every vegan said that before turning vegan and uh yeah, whatever route you want to go, uh, go through, be it animal, animal rights, health, or, or environmental reasons. Yeah, just yeah, make the connection and yeah, do it soon. Really. Mm, great point. And I'm glad you used the word impossible because I had an impossible burger recently and I had to stop eating it because it tasted too meaty. 
So what an incredible substitute for people to drive. They are habitually using meat. And we're so lucky. I meet people, and I feel embarrassed to like you know go uh, go on these animal outreach. And there's people who've been vegan for 20 odd years, have been you know up against <laughs> like when nobody was interested, nobody was talking about it. The foods weren't available, but it's so easy now. We've got the internet. We've got these brilliant advocates. Every supermarket is full of delicious vegan food. Every every meal you want, there's a vegan version of it, and a, a, a brilliant one. You can eat in any restaurant vegan food. It's the easiest time to do it. There's no <laughs> no excuse not to now, really. It's not even a difficult adjustment, is it, really? No, As you say, with the, with the alternatives and, and fact, substitutes on offer. Yeah, and I think most people would act, expand their palate, expand what they eat and, and, and be fine. You know, and a lot of these people, they're dog lovers, they're cat lovers, they, you know, like animals on some level. But, yeah, you know, we've been brought up to you know, love some animals and consume others, but there really is no difference other than our perception. So, yeah, do some research, check it out. And uh, and I don't think any anybody really, when given the truth, you have to go through mental gymnastics to justify, you know, the abuse and consumption of animals and animal products. There just really is no reason. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club.